Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Podcast One presents Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider's scoop on the best new books. Every week, Kirkus brings you author interviews, recommendations from the bestseller lists, and insights into books that are not yet on your radar. Hi, I'm Megan Labrice, editor-at-large of Kirkus Reviews. Welcome to a special episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. That's right, special episode. And my guest this week will be... No one. Instead, I'll be joined by editor-in-chief Tom Beer, fiction editor Lori Muchnick, nonfiction editor Eric Liebetrau, and young readers editors Vicki Smith and Laura Simeon for our first-ever fully booked summer reading episode. Trust me, this is going to be fun. In lieu of the traditional author interview followed by editor's segment format, picture this. Two expanded editor's segments, one fiction and nonfiction, one for young readers, focused on our top reading recommendations for summer 2020. We've got frontlist titles. We've got backlist titles. We've got reading recommendations from former Kirkus Prize finalists and winners to discuss. That's part of our summer reading coverage in the July 1st issue of Kirkus Reviews. And we've got what I'd call a very spirited debate on the relative merits of summer reading programs. Speaking of, first up, we'll have our Young Readers segment with Vicki, Laura, and Tom. They join us now from Portland, Maine, Seattle, and New York City. Welcome to the Young Readers segment of our extra special summer reading podcast. I'm here with Young Readers editors Vicki Smith. Hello. And Laura Simeon. Hello. And of course, co-host, editor-in-chief, Tom Beer. I'm back. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. I am super excited. I think we're, we're going to get a lot of action in the Young Readers segment. First, I mean, first things first, you hear summer reading, what do you think? <laughs> Is it bad that our minds go blank? (laughs) Vicki, is it it an overwhelming time in children's publishing or is it? Well, summer is an overwhelming time in publishing, not because of summer reading, but because what I'm doing right now is preparing for all of the fall books that are going to come landing like, you know, 10,000 pounds of books on September 1st. But before I had this job, I was a children's librarian in a public library when Summer Reading Club is your total focus between the end of school and Labor Day. So I transitioned from one very intense summer experience job to a second very intense summer experience job without really um, knowing that the second would be. So summer reading is just huge. On the subject of the summer reading program, Tom, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but in preparing um, to have this conversation today, i thrown out a couple of questions we might discuss, just summer reading in general. How do you feel about it? Do you have any fond summer reading memories? But the one contentious one was, did you ever run a summer reading program? That was contentious. I mean, you know, both of our Young Readers editors have backgrounds in libraries. And Laura, for you, um, did you ever run a summer reading program? And how do you feel about the concept in general? So for context, I was a school librarian. Mm -hmm. And so summers were my, well, actually, I used to teach summer camp and it involved reading very often. Um, And I'm, of course, a huge advocate for reading, but from an education background and as a fan of Alfie Cones, I have an issue with reward-based reading programs, which um, unfortunately a lot of them are because 
you know, there's a lot of research showing that rewarding behavior decreases intrinsic motivation. And also kids are smart and kids know that you'd never have to reward them to do something that's inherently fun, you know? So I worry about the message it sends, like, you know, read and you get this. On the other hand, I also know a lot of kids and and adults appreciate structure. So things like, you know, like Jean Luen Yang's um, Reading Without Walls that gives you a framework for diversifying your reading, you know, try a different genre, try all these things. Um, I think that can be great. So just, just to be clear. I never had thought about it in that kind of way. I had only thought about it as a young reader, you know, back in the 1980s, you know, trying to get my pizza coupon by reading, I think, two two dozen Babysitter's Club books. (laughs) And you weren't damaged, were you, Megan? You're still a reader. (laughs) So, (laughs) So, Vicki, you've run summer reading programs before. What was your experience of them? For for context, I was in a public library and... Summer reading clubs, they're, they're, they're not called summer reading clubs anymore. Um, I, I've been out of the business long enough that I have antiquated language. But they exist for one primary reason, and that is to keep kids reading over the summer so that they don't experience what's called summer slide. So mm-hmm. kids who end, say, fourth grade and don't read over the summer will begin fifth grade reading at a level somewhere in the winter of their fourth grade year. So it's not like they stay still. They actually lose ground if they don't stay reading. And I I agree with Laura. I think that offering incentives for people to do something that is sheer delight, as far as I'm concerned, Mm. is, is sending the wrong message. But when you've got a lot of kids for whom reading is not sheer delight, if it takes a Dairy Queen coupon, um, <laughs> which the president of my board ran the local Dairy Queen franchise, so I handed out a lot of Dairy Queen cones. Um, <laughs> if that is what it takes to get the kid, and more important, almost, the parent into the library so that the kids stay engaged with books, I, I don't mind getting a little grubby. You know, and I don't know that I have... And in fact, I do know that I don't have encyclopedic knowledge of summer reading programs, and there are lots of different ones. But what we did at my library was, in addition to handing out lots and lots of Dairy Queen cones, is we really tried to engage the community. Mm -hmm. And we did dumb stuff at the end of every summer. We, We challenged the kids to read a certain number of cumulative minutes over the course of the summer. Mm-hmm. And if they met this collective goal, then we'd do something um, sort of painful or embarrassing. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> one year we all dyed our hair neon. So I was fuchsia for several months after. Um, oh. Another year um, we broke a Guinness World Record. And that was an incredible community building experience. Um, the dunk tank was was really unpleasant for me, but a delight for apparently every kid who showed up. So <laughs> so I think that both from a community building standpoint and from for keeping kids engaged and giving both kids and their parents the incentive to get to the library that summer reading clubs or programs or summer learning programs is what they're called more now. They're really, really important and have an awful lot to offer. Tom Beer, were, were they important to you as a child? Were you? I was just going to say, I went. I wish I had gone to one of your libraries. Right. You know what I got what? For, for? I mean, this was back in the seventies. Things were not maybe so fancy. I got a seashell for every book that I read. <laughs> That's adorable. <laughs> That's so cool. So, I that. Did you keep them? Well, so not only did I, did I keep them, but we had to actually make 
um, some kind of craft project with them um, at the end of the summer. (laughs) And so, but I actually, I put my seashells all on this little box, a wooden box that you keep playing cards in. And we still in my family have this darn box with seashells on it that we keep playing cards in. And so it actually is like this little family heirloom now. And it always reminds me of that reading program. And, but you know, I probably as a kid would have been happier to have had a pizza or a Dairy Queen ice cream cone. Uh, They were delicious. The question I have for you though, Tom, the pressing question is, did you grow up inland or on the coast? Uh, more or less on the coast in Massachusetts. I mean, not right on the coast, but, but, you know, not too far I mean, so a seashell is uh, something you could easily acquire on your own? You know, I guess. I mean, there wasn't a beach. (laughs) There wasn't a beach in the town where I went. I don't know. You know, it, I mean, it was a fun thing, but it probably, um, you know, was not as exciting to a kid today as a, as a, as an ice cream cone. We're going to want to see pictures of the box on Slack later. I will get them Thank for you. Thank you very much. Uh, and Megan, mm-hmm. before before every children's services librarian in you know who's listening turns against me, <laughs> I will just say, <laughs> I just have to say two things. One is there are lots of really creative ones that aren't like you know read a book and you get a pizza. There, there's a lot more, and those I think are fine. It's it's the it's the well. I'll send you all Alfie Combs' essay on this topic, but everybody should read his book. It's called Punished by Rewards, and it's got sections for the workplace, education, and parenting. And um, anyway, it's it's like a takedown of like reward based behavior <laughs> management. System. If Alfie Cohn had worked in my town, he might have had a different opinion. <laughs> <laughs> you are getting the real tea here on Fully Booked today. Yes. Okay. I, I've read Alfie Cohn, by the way. I, 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 I have understood the argument. And, and as I said, I do subscribe to it. But, you know, the kids who love reading don't need the incentives. They'll read anyway. And it's mm-hmm. the ones who don't that you worry about. Okay. I actually, um, I want to, I want to make mention of our, you know, the content in our July 1st summer reading issue of the magazine, Kirkus Reviews, if we have time. But really, um, after this discussion, I want to launch just right into Vicki and Laura's front list picks for summer reading. Um, Vicki, um, may we start with you, please? What's your front list pick? I had so many good books to choose from. <laughs> it was really hard. But I tried to put myself in um, in the mode of kid me back when I was reading for the summer and actually not participating in any summer reading programs. And I have chosen Curse of the Night Witch by Alex Astor. And it's a debut novel and it is rich, built world fantasy. It doesn't take place on any recognizable earth. And that's just the sort of thing that I that I totally ate up when I was a kid. And in this world, everybody is born with an emblem on their skin and also a lifeline that indicates not only how long their life will be, but also how many ups and downs they will have. And the main character, Tor, has been born with a leadership emblem. And that makes his mother, who is the chiefess of their town, very happy that he's going to be following in her footsteps. But what he really, really loves is swimming, and he doesn't care about leadership. Um, there's this great line, he has to go to leadership school, and he can't stand it. And the 
the narrator says, if anyone took a look at his daily schedule, he was pretty sure they wouldn't blame him. As a natural born leader, like his mother, Tor's lessons consisted of studying years worth of past political events, documents, and decisions. Not only were these papers long, but the people with leadership emblems never seemed to be good writers, which <laughs> meant countless hours of reading sentences that never seemed to end and about events that were more boring than stale bread. So so that that's Tor. He really wants to swim. And every year, Everybody has one opportunity to make a wish, and if the wish gods feel like it, they will grant it. And so Tor decides that he is going, it's his first opportunity to wish, you can't wish until you're 12, and he's going to wish not to have the leader emblem. What he really wants is the water breather emblem. Mm. But when he wakes up the morning after making his wish, there's... His leadership emblem is gone, and that is good, but there's this incredibly creepy black eye mark that he doesn't recognize. It doesn't stand for anything, and it's, it actually blinks at him from, his, from his, his arm. And his long and boring lifeline is now incredibly short, and so he needs to find out what's going on with this emblem. Two of his classmates, one of his one is his best friend and one is more more of a competitor. They end up joining him and sort of accidentally taking on the, the curse as well. And they need to, you know, they have to find out what it is. And once they find out what it is, they have to find the Night Witch of the title to see if the curse can be reversed. And the way that they navigate this island is so interesting. The author um, grew up listening to her Colombian abuela's cuentos, bedtime stories, and underpinning the cosmology of this island is is a book of cuentos that everybody thinks are fairy tales, but they are actually Tor and his friends realize truth. You know, they are they are basically scripture and more than just truth, because they start encountering the creatures in the Quintos, they realize that if they can follow, use this book of Quintos as a map to find the Night Witch. So reading and story is really embedded in, in, the, in the text. And the Quintos are not strictly traditional Latin American tales, but they have an awful lot in common. So people who are familiar with Latin American folk tales will recognize La Llorona and some of the other figures who are in these cuentos. It's this incredibly interesting transmogrification that they've undergone. Um, I mean, this is her debut novel, and it's so, so intricate and cool and confident. I, I, I'm really excited to see what's next. I'm really excited to read this book, too, Vicki. I'm glad you chose it. It made me—I um, read an interview with the author, which we'll definitely link to in the show notes on our podcast page. But uh, she was talking about how these were—you know, um, here, I pulled a quote. She was speaking in response to the interviewer who was kind of like, wow, this is kind of dark. Like, they could die. You know, the lifeline—Tor's lifeline is shortened, and, like, the stakes are death. Like, you know, is that kind of, like, intense for young readers? And uh, she says— I think even though 8 to 12-year-old seems young, this age group has encountered themes like fate and death before, and it's definitely an ode, as she said, to dark Latinx children's stories, which I heard when I was five years old. Thanks, Abuela. Instead of serving <laughs> instead of serving as a cautionary tale, these themes are meant to make the world feel more real and hopefully get the reader thinking. If I was born in a world where my fate was predetermined, would I try to change it, even if the stakes were high? So... Pretty cool. And you know, whenever people say something about it, like, isn't that dark for children? I want to say, have you read any of the stories that kids write? (laughs) Kids write things that are a whole lot darker than, you know, that that sounds 
delightful. It also sounds like all the Rick Riordan Presents fans would just eat it right up. Oh, yeah, totally. And, you know, it, it really, you can tell that Astor read every single fantasy book in her library when she was growing up. It's not derivative, but, you know, you can sort of recognize little threads here and there, which I think makes it all the more fun for kids who really like reading. And it sounds like it's a world that has its own logic, which is what I love about that kind of book. Just like everything about the world feels really fleshed out and makes sense within its own universe. That's what I really love about a good fantasy novel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When they make up the rules in the in the middle, I, I can't stand that. Or when they change the rules in the middle, I should say. But yeah, no, this is really carefully put together. Okay. This one's a winner. Uh, it's called Curse of the Night Witch by Alex Astor. Thank you for that, Vicky. Next, we've got Laura's pick. What's your front list title, Laura? So I have a debut as well. It's called Ghost Wood Song, and it's by Erica Waters. And this book is, um, if you like a good ghost story, it's perfect. If you like music, as I do, I kind of went down this um, rabbit hole on YouTube listening to music inspired by the book. But anyway, it's about a 16-year-old girl named Shady, Shady Grove, and she loves um, bluegrass, and she plays the fiddle, and she is living in a small trailer with her mom and her brother, um, little sister, and her stepdad, because her father passed away and her mother moved them out of the house. There were ghosts. So her father had this power when he played his fiddle, ghosts would appear. And her paternal grandmother had actually been a medium. So there were these, um, you know, there are these sort of powers or the sensitivity passed down through the family. And Shady, you know, really remembers her dad and bonded with her father through music. So she haunts the woods near their house playing Twa Sisters, which is this Scottish folk melody that is quite morbid <laughs> and mournful. And she, you know, she plays it over and over. Her stepdad is not a pleasant person to live with, to put it mildly. And at some point he's murdered and her brother is arrested. And so there's this whole mystery element as well, where she wants to find out what happened. And there are all these family secrets that people won't talk about. And so um, despite the warnings about the power of her father's fiddle, she pulls it out um, to play, to try to get to the bottom of everything. So it's got a lot of atmosphere. So anyway, I was listening to Twas Sisters. I mean, I love bluegrass. I love fiddle music anyway, but also um, Shady is in this band and there's this whole other element where the three of them have, have, artistic differences so her best friend yes her best friend sarah wants to play kind of like modern folk rock and then the third member of the band is orlando who loves guajira music he's uh, cuban-american and so i was like oh i wonder what that is start listening to that it's great um and so the three of them they have this tension around like the identity of their band but then shady also has this tension because she's bisexual and she has a crush on Sarah, her best friend, but also on this boy, Cedar, who plays mandolin. And so anyway, so there's, her life is complicated, you could say, but it's a great book, very atmospheric. You know, I love uh, atmospheric. That's like a word that resonates. And I love like the musicality, like I, I want to read it and I want to listen to what you listen to. I, I also get the impression, I mean, like the tip off, Shady, Cedar, I get the impression that there's going to be a lot of natural beauty in here too. Yes. I mean, they're definitely, they're living in a rural area yeah. and this, and you get that strong sense of place, yeah. which is also really important to me as a reader. And, and the author lives in Nashville and she plays the banjo, which is a secret ambition of mine. So <laughs> I was like, this is really, what I'm hoping is they'll make it into an audiobook with a soundtrack. Cause I 
listen to some that have soundtracks where the music just really enhances the book a lot. So. Wow. Yeah. Laura, how long have you had this banjo ambition? Because that, that's <laughs> my that's, that's my retirement plan is to learn how is to play it? the banjo. Oh, yes, I love this Thank stuff. So I'm really God. excited about this book. Yes, we need to have a Kirkus Young Readers. Well, <laughs> you, 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 listen, you two are really in luck because I'm running a summer reading program. And if you read thirty, if you read thirty-eight books, you you know you, you you know you read one one book for each string of the banjo, and eventually you 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 can build your own. <laughs> I can't wait. Sign me up. <laughs> I don't know about that, <laughs> What do you think, Tom? Would you join? I would totally join. I'm, I mean, I don't think I could ever play the banjo. I've tried to play guitar, and I'm a disaster at it, and banjo seems even harder. But I love the sound of it, so I'll come and listen. <laughs> Fair there enough. <laughs> okay, I want to roll us right um, into the backlist recommendations that each of you have chosen. Back to Vicky for a backlist title for summer reading. Do you know how hard it is to pick one backlist title out of the universe of backlist <laughs> titles to recommend? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, um Completely arbitrarily, I decided to look at what came out um, in summer of 2010, and I was delighted to see that The Other Half of My Heart by Sunday T. Frazier came out in uh, summer of 2010. And this is very unlike my frontless pick. It's a realistic novel, but it is really a lovely story. Um, it's about twin twin sisters. They've got a black mom and a white dad, but they don't look like each other. Minerva appears white, and so she is very, very comfortable in their Washington State home. And her sister Kira looks black. And she's, you know, has to deal with all of this racism around her in, in Washington. And they spend the summer in North Carolina with their black grandmother who wants them to compete in the Miss Black Pearl preteen pageant, um, which is like this family tradition. And so here, Minerva, who has always, you know, been able to blend in with the dominant culture, is feeling incredibly left out. And Kira has this sense of comfort and connection that she hasn't experienced. It's this really interesting study of these two sisters who are themselves very likable characters. So, um, so that's not fantasy what at all, but it's it's a book that I, I have remembered happily over 10 years. And so I was psyched to see that it was in the summer I chose at random. <laughs> and I have to jump in because Sandy Frazier, she's a local, she's a Seattle area author. And I just love her book. So I, I also wanted to recommend the Cleo Edison Oliver series and the Brendan Buckley series that all have to do with there's a common theme since she's biracial herself. Cleo Edison Oliver is a girl who was adopted. Um, she's African-American and, oh, I forgot her, the rest of her background, but anyway, was adopted by white parents. And then in Brendan Buckley, there's a family estrangement over the parents' interracial marriage, but they're not like problem books. That's what I love about them is they're about these very well-rounded regular kids who also have these things going on. So yeah, real, th very real things. Yeah, they, they're not contrived at all. Um, they, yeah. Thank you for emphasizing that, Laura. Is she still writing? Is she still publishing today? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah she, um, I think when did the last Cleo Edison book came out? That wasn't, that was not well, too long let's ago. Let's see. I can tell you the most recent was 2017 is the last one we reviewed Cleo Edison Oliver in Persuasion Power. 
Well, I'm grateful to you, Vicki, for introducing this author to me. I had not heard of her before. So I went and walked on over to her website, and I love to hear um, how she wrote about her work. And here's from the website. So far, all of my protagonists have been similar, biracial, bicultural, belonging to black, white, brown, beautiful families like mine. As African-American author Paul Marshall, author of Brown Girl, Brownstones, has said, quote, once you see yourself truthfully depicted, you have a sense of your right to be in the world, end quote. And so I have set out to depict my biracial, bicultural experience to validate that experience for those who share it and to shed light on that experience for others. So I look forward to reading her work. Thank you very much. Um, the title that Vicki recommended is The Other Half of My Heart by Sunday T. Frazier. Thank you. Um, one more reading recommendation for summer from Laura. It's the backlist. Yes. And I didn't go as far back as Vicky. And I picked something that I thought might appeal to readers who would like Ghostwood Song. So it's Out of the Blue. It's by Scottish author Sophie Cameron. It was her debut. And it's another one that has a very strong sense of place and a magical element to it. So it's our world set in um, Scotland, but it's this world where these metallic angels are plummeting to earth just in random locations around the world. And nobody really knows what they mean. None of them survive, unfortunately. But, you know, it's all over the news. You know, there's, you know, one here, one there. And these, this online community forms um, called, they're nicknamed wingdings <laughs> and, um, and religious cults, you know, people are reading a lot of significance into this and it focuses, the story focuses on this one family, the white Scottish dad and his two daughters and the, the mother who is Sri Lankan British, um, had died and the older daughter feels this deep sense of guilt. You know, she feels that it was her fault um, that her mother died. Um, anyway, and the, the father in his desperation becomes really, and his grief, he becomes really fixated on these angels and he moves them um, from their village to Edinburgh. And it's in the summer during the Edinburgh Festival. So you've got you know all that in the background. And he's trying to predict, he believes that's when the, the, where the next angel will fall. But meanwhile, Jaya, the older daughter, she finds an angel who has survived, the only one who has fallen to earth and lived and um, hides the angel because she's really worried that, you know, if these wingdings get their hands on it or, you know, or, or the government that, you know, bad things will happen, but then it becomes this moral dilemma. So it's about this family kind of working through grief. It's about, you know, these supernatural creatures and what they might mean. And then um, it's also about the, the twins, um, who Jaya meets and, you know, she falls for Ali, the sister, um, and who also has a, a chronic illness. And, you know, there's, the, they all get pulled into deciding what to do with the angel who they named tea cake, which I just love. <laughs> so, it's not funny bits. It's, it's not a downer. It's very much like this wondrous type of book and it's, it's just stayed with me. So that's my recommendation. Something else that really made me laugh was I, I read um, an interview with Sophie Cameron and they were asked, where did you come up for, with the idea for this novel? And the, quote, the idea actually came from a Lynx and that's that's Axe body spray, but it's that it's the company's like foreign name, came from a Lynx deodorant advert that was on about eight years ago. It shows beautiful female models falling to earth because some guy smells good. So it's ridiculous <laughs> and a bit sexist, but it got me thinking about how people would react if something like that were actually to happen. 
I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Inspiration can come from anywhere. Well, and so often it comes from places that you would not expect. I mean, I, I ask authors, you know, where did this come from? And I think I would never have said that. Reading the book, I had a completely different idea. That's so cool. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, you know, honestly, we've been having such a good time with the recommendations. I think that we've run out of time to talk about pretty much anything else. I mean, Tom... If, if we want to mention the July 1st issue, it's a very good one I've seen. It's great. There's First of all, there's 60 recommended summer reads in all the different areas, fiction, nonfiction, children's, middle grade, YA, indie. And then there's just a handful of, of really great interviews on the children's side. Um, there's Kit Frick. And there's Christy Matheson. You spoke to Christy, Megan. Mm. Um, so we really got to highlight some beautiful, colorful summer books on the young reader side. And I'm really proud of that issue. Everybody worked really hard on it. Yeah. Um, and I compiled a list of our some of our Kirkus Prize finalists and former winners reading re- recommendations for summer. And there were a lot of like really interesting suggestions in there. The first thing I did when Layla Lalamy suggested James Baldwin's Notes on a Native Son was buy it from a random pretty much independent bookstore. And I'm reading that right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, I'm that, reading it. What it's you, a good time to be reading James Baldwin. And what are you thinking, Vicki? Well, um, I, I agree with Tom. It's definitely a good time to be reading James Baldwin. And, and I, I'm only partway through it, so I haven't read all of it. But I don't think I've ever read James Baldwin's criticism. And his review of Carmen Jones mm, yeah. is like the master burn review. <laughs> it's wonderful. I mean, leave aside all of the, you know, important ideas that James Baldwin has. He really could skewer a, a movie that he hated. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, have you ever had a chance to read Baldwin's criticism? Not yet. I, I feel like I need to now. Well, <laughs> recommendation from me and you too, Vicky. Yep. Two. Two yeah. two for Baldwin. I think that that does it for our Young Readers Summer Reading segment. I'm very, very pleased. Thank you all for really bringing it. I think we got some good recommendations in there. Thank you, Megan. That was fun. Thanks. Yeah. It's uh, over so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Just like summer. Once again, that was Vicki, Laura, and Tom with our Young Readers selections for summer 2020. And that was a lot of fun. After the break, we've got our adult fiction and nonfiction recommendations with Lori and Eric. Tom will be leading us off. You're listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider scoop on the latest books, right here on Fully Booked. Welcome, everybody. Uh, This is the Summer Reads issue of Fully Booked, and I'm here with our host, Megan LaBreeze, also fiction editor Lori Muchnick, and nonfiction editor Eric Liebetrau. I'm editor-in-chief Tom Beer, and we're here to talk about summer books. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) And really... Is there even such a thing as a summer book? I'll read anything in this in the summertime, to be perfectly honest. Dry history, memoir, but it is nice to read something that's just pure pleasure 
during the summertime. So we just put to bed, or we're just releasing, really, a great Summer Reads issue. On the fiction and the nonfiction front, we have um, interviews with Ellen Hildebrand, with Kevin Kwan, with David Hill, with Wes Moore. And we talked to a number of authors, Kirkus Prize finalists and Kirkus Prize winners, about their reading recommendations, which I always love to hear what people are recommending. Lori, did you have any reactions to what the authors were recommending in this issue? You know, I loved what Lily King was recommending. She recommended An American Marriage by Tyari Jones, which I recommended on this podcast when it came out quite a while ago. It's such a wonderful book. And it's, you know, only more timely by the minute. I was sort of flipping through it again after Lily recommended it. And just the voices of all the characters just jumped out at me. All these, you know, three different first person narrators, um, Celestial and Roy, the couple who are at the center of the American marriage for, you know, if you don't remember, um, Roy is sent to jail for five years for something that he didn't do at all. And then um, while he's in there, Celestial began a relationship with an old friend of hers, of theirs. And then when Roy unexpectedly got out after five years, the three of them, you know, had to figure out what happened next. And they, they all just jump off the page. They're so prickly and complicated and interesting. And their voices are so great. And so different from Lily King's work, which is, I think, quieter and not first person. Um, but it was interesting. I could see why she liked the book so much. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. Just discussing uh, Lily King, every time I hear that name, I think of the first year of the Kirkus Prize, 2014, when she won for Euphoria. Um, and like you said, it is a little quieter, but I think that book, Euphoria especially, is a really good summer read too. Yeah, Lily also has a new book out. Um, writers and lovers that just came out this year, which is yes, also I'm a reading. really great. Yeah. Reading. You're reading, reading it now. Reading it right now. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. I didn't. I didn't peg you as a writers and lovers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Meg, hey, I'm both. Okay. <laughs> well, that's that's cool, Lori. I'm really happy that you called down an American marriage. And for anybody who wants to really dig way back in the deep down, I interviewed uh, Tiari Jones um, when the podcast was still split into a lead interview and a secondary interview. Mm-hmm. And that was like one of the rare occurrences where I got to do the lead interview and I wanted it so badly. And she <laughs> was just a joy to speak with. And I like remember it and I love that interview. But also, since I got your attention, Lori, I have a bone to pick with you. You, Uh-oh. as Tom said, got to interview Ellen Hildebrand. Yes, for, that is true. <laughs> and uh, th- thus, thus, I did not get to interview Ellen oh, Hildebrand. <laughs> sorry. And let me, I mean, interviewing Ellen Hildebrand was so fun. And I called her on FaceTime. So, you know, she picks up and she appears and there's Ellen Hildebrand, like sitting at her pool, <laughs> <laughs> like a character in an Ellen Hildebrand novel. And she was just so, and I kind of teased her about that. I was like, are you a character in a Nellan Hildebrand novel? And she was so, so nice about it and everything. So, Yeah, and the interview turned out great, too. So kudos to them. And you know what, Megan? Ellen Mm -hmm. Hildebrand is going to have another book out next summer. (laughs) (laughs) 
Because now she does two a year. She also has her winter books. So maybe you can interview her. (laughs) (laughs) This takes us all the way back to the beginning, which which is like, is there such a thing as a summer read? Is there a reading book? Excuse me. I know some (laughs) some people around the office are a little bit touchy when you call a book a read. Like if you use (laughs) So I don't want to make that mistake, but yeah, does does it even exist? We've well, got Hel- Ellen Hildebrand's books, the summer books are all set on Nantucket in the summer and the winter books, her first series of winter books were set on Nantucket in at Christmas. So they, you know, they were seasonal in that way. But now she's doing, she's like a fashion house that has a cruise line or something. Now her winter books are set in the Caribbean. <laughs> so they're still beach books, but they're, you know, winter vacation beach books. Man, I love it. Pretty great. <laughs> Eric, what about you? Was there anything on that list of books that the Kirkus, uh, Kirkus Prize winners uh, recommended that, that jumped out at you and struck you as a book you'd want to read in the summertime? Definitely. Well, actually, one I already read a couple weeks ago. It's called Filthy Beasts by Kirkland Hamill. And it was recommended by Beth Macy, who you should read all of Beth Macy's book as a side note. But Filthy Beasts is this really great memoir. And it kind of starts off, basically, the author grew up when in his younger life, for the first eight years, he grew up a blue bud, kind of on the upper west side of New York. You know, their whole life was servants and private clubs and luxurious real estate. And so I started reading this book. I said, oh, it's just another one of these, you know, rich person memoir. Here's my glittery life. But pretty soon, as he writes, he says, when his family's dormant demons were wrestled from their slumber and his parents divorced... He and his two brothers moved with his mother to Bermuda, where she had grown up in a working class family. And so most of the rest of the book takes place in Bermuda with some flashbacks. But it's a really his mother is this unforgettably monstrous character. She's just she's emotionally manipulative and extremely and a complete alcoholic. She basically emotionally abused all of her kids. And so it's a really good exploration of family and what our reviewer said summed it up pretty well. Um, said it's a stunning, deeply satisfying story about how we outlive our our upbringings. So the author, there's a little bit about his sexuality as a gay man, though that is kind of a um, a subtext more than the actual um, narrative. I mean, the the thing about this is his mother. She's just she's just horrible, <laughs> and it's it makes her really. <laughs> Sometimes depressing, but the way he comes at it, I mean, he's, he's really candid throughout and he, his portrait is just, is just perfect. Does he bring humor into it, Eric? I feel like oftentimes with these, these family stories where it's really dark and there's a difficult parent or something, if the writer can handle it with humor, you, it, it goes down so much more easily for the reader. No, there's no question. I mean, it's, it's, there's even, you'll even get affection for the mother and his father's, you know, not much better than his mother. You know, it really, it it is one of those things that it does read like a novel. It's kind of a cliche, but this, I mean, if you had told me it was a novel, I would have believed you. Um, It's, it's actually, there's, there's plenty of humor. It's a really good balance of humor and emotion. It's just like one of the most memorable, um, memoirs I read this this year. And like I said, I started off not being too, not having high expectations because it just seemed like another portrait of rich people in Manhattan. But where it goes is 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 very deep and profound. 
I'd read that one for sure. Yeah. I, love, yeah. I, I love a dysfunctional family memoir. I mean, oh, it, this is like, this is top notch dysfunctional family memoir for sure. Yeah. It makes me feel better about my own family. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's no doubt. <laughs> I was just thinking because your family sounds so functional, Tom. You, it must be, you know. <laughs> I'm, let, let's just say we all have our issues, but I'm not going to be writing a family memoir anytime soon. I don't think there's enough there to really warrant it. Yeah, me neither. I, you know, I'm a, from a very functional family. I'll admit it, I don't, but I'm drawn to these maybe because I didn't experience anything like this. <laughs> so shall we dive in? Everybody got to choose a book that they that's coming out this summer that they really wanted, both of you that you really wanted to talk about. Why don't we start with you, Lori? What's the book you just really want to press into everybody's hands to read this summer? My book is Deacon King Kong by James McBride, which, you know, I guess Oprah has already pressed it into everybody's hands. So maybe (laughs) he doesn't need me to do that. But um, I want to do it anyway, because this book is just so great. It's like, you know, when, when we were talking at the beginning about you know, what summer reading, I, it was just kind of passing through my mind that I could, you know, we, we each wrote a column, you know, for the magazine of about summer reading. And I could just spin a column out of almost anything on summer reading. It's like, well, this summer is the summer I'm going to read big, long classics. And one summer I read Moby Dick and one summer I read uh, War and Peace, you know, and I could say, this is the summer I'm only going to read things, uh, stories set on the beaches of New England with big dysfunctional families like, you know, (laughs) Maine by J. Courtney Sullivan, or, you know, this is the summer, you know, I was thinking last night, like, should I write a column about writing short stories? Because, you know, you could read each one in a day, but you can kind of spin summer reading any way. But Deacon King Kong, it's like, there's so much in it, it kind of fulfills any of those needs, you know, it's, it's um, it's pretty long, but it also goes fast. So you can really like dive into it and get involved. It's funny. It's topical. It's current. It's, you know, it, you can, you can read each chapter and they're pretty self-contained in a way because they move among different characters. So you could, you know, read one today and feel like complete and then pick up another one tomorrow. It kind of just fits every summer reading need. It's like the summer perfect book um, for summer reading. It is about, um, it takes place in a, a public housing project in in Red Hook, Brooklyn, although he doesn't call it that. He gives places some different names, but it's clearly Red Hook. And at the beginning of the book, the, the named character, Deacon King Kong, King Kong is a sort of... Um, illegal alcohol that's being brewed by one of the old men who lives in the housing project. And the main character, whose his real name is Cubby, I think, but he's known as Sport Coat. But then (laughs) he's also known as Deacon King Kong, because he's he's a deacon at the local church. And he is always a bit drunk on King Kong, the special brew. So it's kind of a funny, you know, when you hear the title, you think, what is that? mean exactly so that's what it means um so he comes out he's drunk all the he comes out to the courtyard of the housing project and on one side of the fence of the um flagpole 
are a bunch of old people who gather there every morning to gossip and talk and they get free coffee someone brings out uh, to help the elderly. And then on the other side of the flagpole are the drug dealers, the, the main, the, the main drug dealer and his, and you know, his crew. So Deem, who's the main drug dealer, he's a 19 year old kid who sport coat used to coach on the baseball team and sport. And he was a fantastic baseball player, but he's stopped playing because now he's too busy dealing drugs and sport coat goes up to him and says to him, you know, he's drunk and he doesn't really, I think exactly know what he's doing or why he's doing this. And he says, you know, why aren't you playing baseball anymore? You were the best player we ever had. And, you know, Deems kind of has some residual affection for him. So he's kind of kidding around with him, but eventually he gets tired of this and he, you know, is trying to get rid of him. And then uh, sport coat takes a gun out of his pocket and shoots Deems. Meanwhile, a, an African-American undercover cop is who's been undercover as a janitor at the housing project sees what's going to happen and he calls out you know he's got a gun so dean moves over and only his ear gets shot off so this sets off all kinds of repercussions you know everybody is trying to find sport coat who just kind of toddles off he's kind of in a you know alcoholic haze he doesn't even realize what he's done he goes off by an hour later, he doesn't even remember having done it. You know, his friends are trying to tell him to leave town. Everybody's looking for him. He's kind of wandering in a haze. But it just brings out all these amazing characters, the local, you know, Italian mafia-connected people. There's even a whole chapter called The March of the Ants, which is about these huge red ants that take over the housing project every spring. And... You know, it traces them back to where they came from. In Latin America, a a spurned wife put a bunch of them in her husband's lunchbox as he got on the plane to go back to New York after telling her that he was divorcing her. And, you know, this was decades ago, and now the ants have colonized Brooklyn. I just want to I just want to read a little bit because it it's, it starts out being about the ants, but it gives a great feeling for McBride's writing, which is ebullient and he, he specializes in lists. He just piles things one after the other and they're funny and engaging and then they turn out to be really thought-provoking and meaningful by the end of it. So I'm just going to read a little bit uh, since Vicky's not here. I, I'm taking over the reading <laughs> part. Okay. Of course, no one in the cause, that's the housing project, no one in the cause paid much attention to the March of the Ants. In a housing project where 3,500 Black and Spanish residents crammed their dreams, nightmares, dogs, cats, turtles, guinea pigs, Easter chicklets, children, parents, and double-chinned cousins from Puerto Rico, Birmingham, and Barbados into 256 tiny apartments, all living under the thumb of the wonderfully corrupt New York City Housing Authority, which for $43 a month rent didn't give a squirt whether they lived, died, shot blood, or walked around barefoot so long as they didn't call the downtown Brooklyn office to complain, ants were a minor worry. And no resident in their right mind would go over their heads to the mighty housing authority honchos in Manhattan who did not like their afternoon naps disturbed with minor complaints about ants, toilets, murders, child molestation, rape, heatless apartments, and lead paint that shrunk children's brains to the size of a full-grown pea in one of their Brooklyn locations unless they wanted a new home sleeping on a bench at the Port Authority bus terminal. 
So, yeah, you know, it starts out being sort of funny and about ants and it winds up being really incisive. So, yeah, I've run out of things to say. That is just, you know, I'm just. (laughs) 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 Oh, but that was that was good. That was good. He's such an excellent writer. You know, we're not the first people to say so. You know, he gets (laughs) like he is tops and he's also an excellent Tenor saxophone player, James McBride. He is. <laughs> he That's is. funny. I was going to mention that. I mean, he's uh, a yeah. great speaker as well. From he Texas is. Book Festival a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. If uh, listeners haven't yet, you should check him playing out with uh, the Good Lord Bird Band at uh, Live from mm-hmm. the NYPL. Mm-hmm. Like, those clips are really good. And it's just like, <sighs> big appreciation for Mr. McBride. <laughs> And he brings that kind of jazz spirit almost to the mute, to the writing, right? It's just got yeah. energy and it's innovative and improvisatory. It feels improvisatory. I'm sure he labors over it quite a bit. Yeah. But it has that That's same exactly right. same energy. And I always picture him in a pork pie hat. Yeah. <laughs> which is just like quintessential jazz. Um, but I feel like the couple of times that I've seen him, he's had this pork pie hat on, like Lester Young. And, and- sport coat wears a pork pie hat and there, you know, I can't, I don't know if you can picture the cover of this book, but it's, there's kind of a thick black outline of a character um, just wearing a pork pie hat. And in place of the face, it just says Deacon King Kong. So really the hat is the, the identifying characteristic. Great. I am so excited to read this. You and Oprah both have convinced yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> um, Eric, what about you? What's the what's the new release that you're really pushing on everybody this summer and encouraging people to read? I have a debut, actually. It's called Fathoms, The World and the Whale. It's by Rebecca Giggs. She's uh, an award-winning writer from Australia. And I actually have a an interview coming up with her in the next few days. So I'm excited about that because I just finished her book and this is really just, it's hard to believe it's a debut. It's this beautifully written book about whales, but it's not just about biology and what whales do and how they behave, which is fascinating enough. And she does cover a lot of that. Um, But she also goes back to the many myths and, you know, folklore and things that have fascinated us for centuries, all focused on what on whales and, how they interact with the environment. And it's an amazing mixture of both of those elements, as well as her own experiences with whales. She opens with this really, it's really heartbreaking scene of a beach whale. And she describes, she talks to one of the marine biologists who's there and she describes the process of what's going to happen to the whale, how it's going to, how they're going to have to dispose of it. And it's actually, you know, it's, it's, Depressing, but really fascinating. And you learn a lot in the first few pages. And then she just goes through and she, you know, she travels around the world and talks to people about what whales mean to them, the whaling industry, the whole save the whales of the 70s and 80s and how that affected, you know, our uh, outlook about whales. And Lori, I'm actually going to do some reading as well, if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> because it's it's hard to ca- I was actually looking through the the book before I got on the call and it's there's so many unbelievable passages in this book. Um it's something it reminds me a lot of Robert McFarlane, if anybody knows that British natural history writer. Yeah. It just it's enchanting and informative at the same time. But she's talking about it's this passage where she's talking about like ancient times and 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 early early exploration times when people are trying to figure out trying to map the world and thinking that maybe it's, it's infinite and there might be no end to where the world goes. And then 
she talks about, you know, as, as we've experienced environmental degradation and it seems like the world is almost closing in on us. There's this passage I want to read. She says, at this moment in time, we fear the opposite of those early cartographers. We fear that there is no void, no part of the planet untouched. This fear intensifies on hearing of, among other obscenities, de- debris fields in the deeps where tresses of plastic shopping bags are picked over by pallid flea-sized amphipods, the only ghouls so versatile. A powerful, creeping horror. Our hunch is that what lurks beyond the end of the map territory now is either a host of exotic drolleries nor large, enchanting wildlife. There, instead, lies the dross of our everyday lives. A haunted house never inhabited, but nonetheless built by our hands. This loss in containment destabilizes not just how we see nature, but also our sense of self. Were we the monsters of trespass all along, closing down the dominion of the wild? So it's that kind of writing that kind of permeates the book, and it's just a fascinating page turner. Eric, what's her background? Is she like a? Is she a scientist? Is she a journalist? She's not. She's a, she's a journalist, um, but she's kind of a you know. It's very much in the the tradition of Rachel Carson and Rebecca Solnit, mm. and it's yeah. She doesn't have a great scientific background, but the research involved in this must have been pretty staggering. I look forward to talking to her about it. It's so interesting because this immediately makes me think of of an author who does have a really interesting scientific background. She has a PhD in ocean science. It's Julie Burwalt, who wrote that Mm -hmm. book, Spineless, The Science of Jellyfish and the Art of Growing a Backbone uh, that Riverhead published some years back. Good good suggestion. I, I love that book so much, and I have a feeling I would have just as much fondness for this one. I know both of you brought an old favorite, uh, uh, you know, a, a title that's been published in the past sometime that is just a favorite summer read. Lori, what's what's the title you wanted to recommend? Mine is Aquamarine by Carol Anshaw, which came out in 1992, I think. And it's a wonderful book. It's about a girl named Jessie Austin, who in 1968 went to the Olympics as a swimmer and while she was there, she was kind of, she fell in love with her chief competitor, who was another a swimmer from Australia. And something went on between them that you don't entirely find out for a while. And then after a short intro chapter that takes place at the Olympics, we cut ahead to when Jessie is 39. But there are three different lives available to her, depending on a decision she makes right after the Olympics. She's doing completely different things, living in different places, Sometimes she's married to a man or she's divorced or she's living with a woman. She's a college professor. She's, you know, she's all different things depending on like one little choice. And I feel like there have been other books like this written since then, but this was the first one that I know of. And it's just so pleasurable. And Anshar does such a great job kind of making her recognizable in each situation. And and you see how her choices affect her family and her friends and it's just, and it's just beautifully written, very smooth and very enjoyable. And there is, it's a blue cover with water on it. So it has the summer reading theme too. <laughs> That's Aquamarine by Carol Anshaw. Eric, what about you? What's the backlist title that you would really encourage people to go out and find this summer? I'm going to go back to 2010 and Ian Fraser, the New Yorker writer. Uh, he had a book called Travels in Siberia. It's kind of, you know, the opposite of summer temperatures, though we have recorded 100 degree Arctic temperatures 
recently, which is incredibly disturbing. But this book wow. is a, it's, it's a five, 600 page, just travel across all of the vast, mostly uncharted landscape of Siberia. Uh, and it's just a really, I mean, he's an ex, he's, he's kind of, the, he's an excellent guide, very genial, but also does his research. And Siberia to me is such a, you know, I was talking previously about the oceans and Siberia is also similarly vast and unknown. And it's just a fascinating, a, like a really fascinating travelogue and Ian Frazier, of course, wrote Great Plains and a bunch of other really, really good books. So this one, if you want to get out of the heat and get into the cold, jump into this one. Sounds good to me. Yeah, Yeah, me too. I'm a Frazier fan. (laughs) Yes. Great. Well, you guys, thank you so much for your – my list is – honestly, I'm going to need to be reading these summer books into the fall because I've got such a long (laughs) list now. But these all are fantastic, and thank you for – recommending them to us, recommending them to the listeners, and it's been great talking about them. That does it for this very special summer reading episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again next week when my guest will be the one and only Duchess Goldblatt, literary darling and toast of Twitter, who will be here to speak about the memoir Becoming Duchess Goldblatt by Anonymous. This is our most mysterious podcast yet, and I encourage you all to listen in. But until then, you know what to do. Turn this thing off and go read a book. Thanks for listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Check out new episodes every Tuesday at podcastone.com, on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>